Hello and welcome to episode ten of Naturally Curious. My name is Clayton Law, and my guest today is English professor Stephen Brown. How are you today? Do you really want to know? That we could spend the whole next hour just、oh, me、no. going over all of my imaginary illnesses, but probably hey, it's hey, I'm still alive.、Side. It's Friday. I'm still alive. Yeah, I'll take my pulse, and I'll tell you in a minute. You know, so. <laughs> that's a <laughs> that's that's a great outlook in life.、Yeah. Um, let's just start from、uh, close to the beginning. Did you always like English literature when you were young? What would I say about that? Did I like reading? Not nearly as much as any of my colleagues. I had real attention deficit syndrome, so the idea of sitting still for a long time working through a novel didn't really appeal to me. So I'd have to actually say, not really, not a, not a first. So, a,、uh, what did you like then? Like science? What did I like? I liked baseball. What did I like about school? Not very much, because I was always in trouble. Uh-huh. Partly because the attention deficit, I also have a bit of Tourette's. So I mean, we're talking going to school in the, through the late fifties, early sixties. People <laughs> just thought you were either, you know, unbalanced or a delinquent. Either way, you just got smacked around and sent to the principal's、mm-hmm. office a lot. Yeah. So <laughs> what did you, when you were a kid? Did you? I guess did you want to be like a baseball star or something?、Is、no, because I was completely non-athletic. I just like pretending to play baseball. Oh. <laughs> no, and, and actually, I mean by pretending, getting out there on the field and being the worst baseball player on the field. So what did I think I would be? I don't know. My dad was a janitor when he worked. But,、uh, you know, I never really thought much about the future. Mostly, my family were hiding from the future. They were all,、uh, you know, under the kitchen table, you know, hoping nobody would knock at the door. But, so, <laughs> when did you kind of get a sense of, oh, English literature is the kind of thing I like? I, we were talking about this when we were setting up、yeah. because I started in math and I had a big scholarship in math, and, and they were very disciplined. And、uh, in English, you could hand things in late, nobody took marks off, you drop past the office, they just chat away to you. And I thought, this is a very good place for people with attention deficit syndrome. So in I went. But,、uh, And、uh, and I'd liked actually to be serious about it. What I've always liked is textual interpretation, working with language, and I think that attracted me because I liked working with numbers, and to me equations and、uh, poems are the same thing. How can who who says something very elegantly? You know whose equations are the most succinct and yet. Full of resonance and information that you can just you know hover over them forever, or words align a poetry or a word that when you spin it, you know its resonance goes in every direction. And and honestly, that's still today what I like about studying and about teaching it. You know the rhetorical aspect. But I'm gonna assume that well, I I don't know actually, but did, when you started English or even math, like were you thinking, oh, yeah, I want to be a professor? No, no, that even happened by accident. Because I, I got I, when I got towards the end of my first degree, and I actually took thirty-two full English courses over the course of four years. I would go in the evenings, and whenever I wasn't working, I was taking a class, but,、uh, and I worked full time as well. Which is not to make it sound as if I had endless energy. I just had attention deficit syndrome. I'm just constantly going. So when I realized, well, I had to leave. What did I do? Become a teacher. So sure about that. I actually wrote exams to go to medical school, and then I got a very large scholarship to do the MA. And I thought,、oh, what the to, heck? To do to do, do a master's degree in English. And I thought, okay, well, we'll just do this. And you know, it kind of one thing led to another, and 
You know, to, it's like never leaving your parents' home. You know, like you come back and you set up in the basement and your mother does your laundry and she cooks for <laughs> you. And then one day you're 66 and you're still there. That's my relationship to English. I came home mm. and you know, got fed, got my laundry done. And, you know, later I woke up in the front of the classroom and just have stayed. Is there a point where you just go like, well, uh, I want to be an English professor? Is there a like a particular age or I don't know that would it, it worries me when I have students come up and tell me I want to be an English professor it makes me think they've said to me you know something like you know I really want to spend the rest of my life with my arms tied behind my back staring at paint drying on a wall I can't <laughs> think why say so why would you do that have you thought of anything else let's jump out of an airplane together let's do anything but that so there's always been a part of me that's kind of found academia very ironically comical. Hmm. I really can't quite understand why people get paid to do this. Partly, I'm sure it's my social background, and partly it's my innate um, skepticism. Yeah, I was listening to a, uh, another podcast, Freakonomics, and uh, um, they were talking, the two hosts, they were talking um in that one episode, it was like, oh, uh, so so they were chatting with each other, saying, oh, so what have you been doing? It's like, oh, uh, you know, the the guy is uh, uh, as a professor in uh, economics, and he was saying, oh, uh, you know, I also really uh, I I was doing this, this, and that, but I'm also really into like want to know about actual reality. Yeah. And then the other host is like, so are you implying academia is nothing like reality? Uh, no, I understand. Like yesterday, I came to a meeting here, and there were uh, four other colleagues at the meeting. I'm still not entirely sure why we had to have the meeting, but I think none of us had anything else to do in the morning to justify our existence. <laughs> when I left the house, there was a fully trained, highly skilled carpenter with his two apprentices. When I got back four hours later, they had built an entire deck with a copula out the back of my house. And I thought, okay, who has achieved something this morning <laughs> and who has not? <laughs> and I probably got paid more an hour than they did, which is just shameful, but... Uh, Oh, it's the way things have fallen out. Now, if I was in environmental studies and saving you know, the planet from human malfeasance, or if I was in medicine and finding cures for being short or bald, <laughs> if I was doing anything that actually might have an immediate benefit on people, but instead I'm like all humanists. We're sort of like Socrates, just wandering around, you know, being kind of a nuisance, you know, to trying very hard <laughs> not to be noticed. You know, to, and uh, so it's an odd, it's an odd profession. Teaching is great. You're, I mean, being around young people all the time, that part of it is wonderful and a, and a real gift. I go to my doctor's office, and she's a GP, and you'll sit there, and unless there's a newborn infant, there is nothing joyful in the room. There are people who are clearly on the verge of death. There are people who are hacking up the flu. There are people who look like they should just have stayed home in bed instead of bringing their germs in. And she gets to spend 10 minutes with each of them over and over in a rush all day. And I come here, and for the most part, no, it's people who have a sense that the future will be okay. Even if they're on, you know, they're on bad times, they're depressed a little, you can talk to them and you know, bring them along. No, I'm not faced daily by disease and despair, and, uh, and 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 that I think is is what makes it most possible. That's why I stay away from graduate programs, and you know I've been offered jobs at schools with PhDs where they want it, 
uh, both my wife and I to go and be part of the graduate program. And I thought, why would I want to be around people who want to be like me? <laughs> I'd rather be around people who don't. Uh, uh, Fair. Uh, okay. You're, you're not recording this, are you? I'm recording everything. You are? Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Can we start over? <laughs> uh. <laughs> I really think academia is wonderful. I think English professors contribute more to the benefit of society than anything. If we didn't have the value of humanness, who would keep bankers from stealing all the money from us? You know, to, you know, I think everybody should do a BA in the humanities, and I think the government should encourage people and pay all the costs for producing more PhDs in humanity. And I think all of my colleagues in the humanities contribute significantly to bettering our world. Can we substitute record, that no. for what I just yeah, said? It's, not, it's now on record. Yeah, okay. we got it. <laughs> okay, let's start off broad. Uh, in a few sentences, can you explain why are we still studying Shakespeare's 400 years after his death? No, you see, and now you... We'll, 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 we'll obviously, we'll go deep into it. So can you just, in a couple sentences... Okay, now uh, you've got me. So now I have to be serious about why I really am here. Um, one thing I like to point out to students for the last few years, at the, during the London Olympics... The, uh, whoever holds the Olympics also has a parallel what they call culture Olympics or something to that expect where they explore something about you no know, creativity and, 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 and humanism so clearly it being London they celebrated Shakespeare now I'm probably exaggerating somewhat but I think over 30 different languages were used to perform Shakespeare plays from countries participating in the Olympics. And they were countries who regularly performed Shakespeare in their native language as part of their national theater. One of the most extraordinary ones about which a documentary was made by a Toronto filmmaker was uh, from Afghanistan, their former uh, national theater, which had clearly you know, been destroyed by the war. And they did a translation into their native language of comedy of errors. They had to rehearse it in Pakistan because of the problems with the Taliban, and they brought it and performed it to the globe. So whatever it is about Shakespeare, you know, there's very few texts of any kind that seem to speak across cultures that way. And I think when you look at um, you know, international companies performing Shakespeare, what they all seem to talk about is his understanding of the dynamics of intimate family structure. No matter what your customs are around family, you still have mothers and fathers, daughters and sons, and the clashes, you know, and the complexity of, uh, of, of love in those environments. So that, yeah, that, yeah, definitely. Uh, the rest of the curriculum, I'm not so sure, but Shakespeare, <laughs> definitely. But, uh, um, a, a journalist, uh, this journalist, author, and podcaster, Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. once said that in an uh, interview, you think with your eyes and you feel with your ears. Is that what you mean when you said listening to Shakespeare in your TED Talk? Is it like, is it kind of similar? Yeah, and I think it's that case of really understanding that you've got to get it off the page. I suppose that's always bothered me about reading. You know, and I, I always like theater and I always love film. But the idea of sitting alone and in my head no trying to hear the voices in a novel always troubled me. And that kind of silent reading that we're taught in schools came very late to our culture. In the 18th century, even much of the early 19th century, people read aloud. That's why in, in Mary Frankenstein's novel, 
No, the creature learns to read by listening to the family reading stories aloud to one another. And that's how his education comes about. And in, in a lot of African-American slave literature, they will talk about their master talking to books. And it's that reading of it aloud. And Dickens talks, uh, you know, it, it's quoted by Eliot in The Wasteland. Uh, in one of his novels about a boy who reads the Police Gazette, you know, to, uh, you know, to all these other you know, to, uh, street folk. And he says he does the police in different voices. And it's that notion of once you get it off the page, that listening to Shakespeare is saying, what are the voices there? And who is not talking? Who is listening for us? If there's three or four characters on stage, they're all there for a purpose. If one of them says nothing in the scene, how are they listening? Are they listening in a way that we should be attending to. We can watch them listen as we're listening and sometimes hear a complexity that we can't hear on our own. Like those sitting in a coffee shop or a, you know, waiting for a bus and suddenly you understand a conversation you can only barely overhear by watching how that couple are listening or not listening to one another. Does that give you a bit of it? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you were saying... Um, they were reading out loud yeah. text in the 18th All the way 19th? through. People always read out loud. No. And, well, I mean, like, not okay. as much anymore. No, no, because you begin to get to silent reading for, there's a whole set of theories about it. Some of it has to do with the more you go indoors and into studies and sit by yourself. No. Others of it has to do with excessive note-taking and rote learning. But for the longest while, you know, to, you, people read aloud to one another. And it, there still are, uh, it's always wonderful. Like my, one of my daughters you know, is in a very strong relationship now. And one of the things I thought quite you know, moving about you know, that relationship as she shared details with us was how they like to read to one another. You know, the, and my other daughter now is in a relationship where two, although they have very different backgrounds, know where they both are lovers of books but they like to share the reading and and to read aloud to one another and so i think there is something about a kind of reading where the words want off the page that's what we go to hear you know writers reading here unfortunately writers often don't read their own stuff very well because they <laughs> read it too quickly or they don't have any acting talent they can't get inside it but poetry wants to be off the page you know novels became such large beasts that it became harder and harder also to read that aloud to someone, you know, because you would be at it for hours and days and weeks. But with poetry, drama, all those texts, you know, to, I mean, Jane Austen, you know, never saw a professional theater performance, but her family acted out plays altogether, you know, got the text. That's how she understood her Shakespeare was by performing it with her siblings and her family, yeah. So there are many math teachers and professors will tell their students to understand what they're doing. Yeah. Don't just automatically apply this formula or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, you really need to understand the mechanics behind the algorithm. Yeah. For me, uh, it sounds similar to yeah. what you said when you tell, uh, again, in the TED Talk, don't look for themes, don't look for meaning. Yeah. Like You really need to immerse yourself into yeah. it before you autom like. Don't just make those connections automatically. Am I getting this right? Yeah, no, you are very much. And one of the things that particularly troubles me, and my you know, students will hear me going on and on about it, is bringing, making a text a, a playing ground for literary and philosophical theory. 
You know, if you are engaged in the study of identity theory elsewhere, you're interested in gender politics and postmodernism or Marxist analysis of text. Often students, as they become more engaged with, with literature, feel they need the theory. And they end up talking more about the theory than they ever do the language or the text. You know, that's what they bring to it. Or they're reading it towards how will I write about it. You know, is there something here that I can take away and turn into an essay? Is there something here? Often even critics of film and performances now will do that. Right now, with all the, you know, the, the difficulties around uh, uh, you know, the Joker, much of that has to do with film critics and social critics arriving with a preconception and watching the movie in order to demonstrate their preconception. And that, I think, is the, again, going back to listening to the text. Let it speak to you understand its language. If there's words you haven't heard before or words you haven't heard used in that way, no, feel the music of that. No, let it connect with moments in your own life where those words have been meaningful or moments in your own life you've struggled with where suddenly you've got a pattern of words that help you to begin to understand those those moments of self-discovery. But there's so much theory no, right now in the humanities, that becomes problematic. And, uh, people are more interested in the language of their, you know, their, uh, their, their feminist approach than they are in the language of the text itself, more interested in their post-colonial deconstruction than in trying to understand the text. Yeah. Always a problem with humanities. It's a very promiscuous discipline, English especially. So English is always borrowing from sociology, psychology, as if it is reluctant to stand on its own because it feels its own clothing isn't distinguished enough. You know, to, so it, it looks for something in another discipline to intellectualize itself. But that's also just how um, high school teachers, like when we were in yeah. high school, like I was taught to, oh, look for these uh, metaphor and themes and all that. Like, uh, are there, are there any, like do you have any suggestion like concrete suggestion that are that less abstract like for high school or how they should approach one thing we've been talking about with Macbeth right now me and my colleague Andrew Loeb are teaching together I'm having a wonderful time with him because he shares the same kind of you know, the understanding of how to go about teaching literature and teaching Shakespeare we were looking at the opening of Macbeth and students come out with a notion of the witches representing the supernatural, and they're the ones who tempt Macbeth and put all the notion of evil into his mind, and then his wife forces him to do it. If you listen to the witches' scenes, they're very comical. And in their second scene, it's full of fart jokes, <laughs> and that's what they are. Now to, and if you miss those, you have missed something essential about how Shakespeare is representing these three weird sisters, as he calls them. You know, they are not necessarily a threat in themselves. They're just perceived that way. And it, 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 they actually never do anything. And in this one scene, the, the first witch says, oh, you know, I, the other day there was a woman, she was eating nuts, and I said to her, give me some. And she just munched and munched and munched and said, oh, get lost, you old bitch. And then she said, I'm going to get her for that. Her husband is a sailor going to Aleppo, and I'm going to, I'll do, I'll do, I'll, oh, I'm going to send winds there, I'm going to do all of this. And then the other one says, I'll give you a wind. 
And the third witch says, I'll give you a wind. And then the first witch says, and I've got the biggest wind of all. And you know they're fart jokes. Oh. They're each of them farting. They're each saying, here's some wind, here's some wind. Oh. And it has to be that. <laughs> and there are other similar kinds of moments. And if you're thinking of it intellectually, so this is very profound, about, you know, on witches. And King James believed in witches. And now the Salem witch trials are coming up soon. And this is all about the oppression of women. It is about the oppression of women. But not as witches, but about ignoring women about the powerlessness of women. You know, Lady Macduff and her children are slaughtered. You know, There's an extraordinary moment in the play where it's quite clear that Lady Macbeth miscarried their one child. Yep. And it's a very brief reference, but it's quite clear the Macbeths are not going to have children. And that's what troubles Macbeth a lot. And when the, the weird sisters say to Macduff, uh, not to Macduff, out to Banquo, your children will be kings and say to Macbeth, you will be a king but have no successors. No, it's not the supernatural. It's the crisis in families. You know, your wife lost your baby and you'll never have another baby. And uh, Edward Albee picks that up in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Academics miss that. Teachers in high school miss it. It's hard to talk about life not because then you have to reveal your own emotions. Teachers often don't want to do that, want to be vulnerable with their students, don't want to say, I don't know the answer, and don't want to say, this is about the mystery of sadness, you know, or this is about the joy of, of, of humor. Not, uh, it's much easier to say, this is about post-colonialism. Mm -hmm. No, or can you collect all the metaphors of flowers in Act Two? You know, to, that's easier to mark. You know, to, no, the other is vocationally much more complex. So should mm -hmm. uh, like the curriculum in high school just have something that's simpler? Like, what can I? What, what like I I I try to come out of uh, like let's say I try to come out no. of high school without just looking at every single piece of text yeah. and be like, oh, that's metaphor, that's theme. Yeah. Like, how can the, like, do you have any suggestions? Well, I mean, what do you want to get out of an education that involves literature? So you want to be able to read effectively and critically. You want to be able to listen critically so that if you're in an election or you're arguing with your spouse or your child is trying to persuade you to let them do something you didn't think you would ever let them do, how do you listen? How do you hear their voice? How do you know if maybe you should adjust yourself? So we need to learn to listen, be aware of language. We need to learn to speak with care so that we, as much as we ever can, are coming close to saying what we mean. And we need to be able to write clearly and read clearly. So those are our skills of rhetoric. How do we as human beings use language the most effectively, both as agents of it and as receivers of it? And then you want to say, well, what literature helps you do that? I think having a curriculum in which says you have to do a certain number of texts in a certain period of time puts more emphasis on how can I guarantee you get X out of that text. If How, how much time can you spend with one poem with one short story, allowing it to settle in and be interesting for the students and allowing them to see the way in which they can disagree about it, the way in which you yourself as a teacher 
don't finally have an answer. I mean, one of the things I love about team teaching with people who you have a good relationship with, I teach with Hugh Hodges, a first year and fourth year, and with Andrew this year, a, a second year Shakespeare course. We can disagree with one another, no, and, and we can the following week change our minds, and I hope communicate to students, it's not that there's no answer, it's not that you can let it be whatever you want it to be, there are definitely less appropriate answers, but you're going to be constantly trying to discover, is there a better way of saying this? Did I say what I meant? You know, have I ever, uh, do I understand what I feel about my parents? Have I ever been able to express that? I think the honest answer to both those questions is no. You know, and one of the things you get in good literature is the exploration of that explanation of characters struggling to express love and anger and all those complex things as honestly as possible. And it's not that they fail to do it. It's just that they don't fulfill you know, the doing of it. You know, so that's a difficult thing to do is people would say, well, what's the learning outcome? I don't know. You know, and curriculums now are all about learning outcomes. I mean, <laughs> even in universities, you'll, you'll see that. Government wants to say, okay, we paid this money. The student was here. They spent grade 11 with you. Name the three things they should know so we can grade their success and then determine if you were an effective teacher. You know, to be like Socrates and tell them, why well, I really don't know. <laughs> they should learn to know themselves, know thyself. I know it doesn't matter, NDP, the Green Party, anybody, you know, the Tories, Andrew Scheer, anyone who's going to say, well, that's not good enough. <laughs> I, I can't quantify that. Please quantify it for me. And I think that's the difficulty in some applied disciplines. You, know, to, you can quantify it. And I suppose satirically what I was meaning at the beginning, what did I like about English? It wasn't quantifiable. What I began to disturb me about mathematics, the teaching of it wanted it to be quantified. And, uh, and wanted it to be measurable. And I found my sensibility rebelled against that. Yeah. What is the appeal and how does iambic pentameter even work? Because is this it, is it <laughs> something that us as humans just learn to like or is it like the golden ratio where we look at it just like, ah, this is how things should be? It's kind of like the golden ratio for dummies. I guess it's... You could take almost any... Uh, three lines spoken by any individual, two minutes of conversation, you could probably break it into iambic pentameter. Not, uh, it's just the basic rhythm in which English works, in which we tend to stress every other syllable. Now, we don't do that so consistently that we speak like da-dump, 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 which is iambic <laughs> pentameter. You know? uh -huh. And in, in Shakespeare, that's very flexible. One thing it does do if you're writing during a period where many of your actors aren't even literate, it's easier to memorize because there's a rhythm to it. But it's not such a rhythm that, like, you know, like, like meter in, 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 in Italian or French or Spanish verse, it really is significant. English is a percussive language. You know, and right back to old English, it's that way. It's about beats. And Hebrew is that way, too. There's a beat. No, we, we stress this, we don't stress that, and the beat is recognizable almost like drumming. So English is a kind of naturally marching language that way, and iambic gives you that. Now, 
you, if you speak it, heavily emphasize the iambic, it sounds like nonsense. But it's that foundation. You know, it's almost like a, a very loosely woven basket to hold the words together so that the actor can carry them, i.e. memorize them. And then it, it floats away. But if you teach it that way, so you say, here's a trochee, and here's an iam, and here's a sponde, and there's a sejura there, students will very quickly think, okay, that's very hard, but if I learn that, and memorize it the night before and give an example of each of those on the exam, then I will get a 90 and get into university. But they will never have inhabited the text. So I sometimes think you shouldn't even introduce that stuff until people have begun to have a love for the author and to appreciate it. And then they'll know the extent to which it is helpful or not, and they can decide on their own. Years ago, the Paul Muldoon, the Irish poet, who's one of the, the greatest living uh, English language poets, he holds the poetry chair at Princeton, and he, he came several times to Trent because his brother, Joe Muldoon, was an administrator here. And in one of his talks, well, after he'd read some poetry and talked about poetry, after he'd been chair of poetry at Oxford, Someone in the audience asked him about meter. How do you use meter in your writing of poetry? He's a very wry guy, Paul. So he turned his back to the audience and pretended he was writing on a blackboard. And he said, well, I start on the left side of the page. If I was Jewish and writing in Hebrew, I would start on the right side of the page. And my wife is Jewish, but she doesn't write poetry. So I'll start on the left side of the page. And he was already parodying the notion that there was a rule to it. And he said, then I write the first word and the next word and the next word. And eventually the line says to me, Paul, time to start another line. And I go back to the left and start. Now, that was a very clever and cynical answer from a man who's probably the greatest practitioner of verse form right now in English, who writes in every verse form imaginable, who is a complicated user of rhyme, who writes songs, who writes sonnets. He knows the discipline of it, but he knows you shouldn't let the discipline get in front of the writing, the enjoying, you know, it, it, the, the poetry as an experience. Any more than a really fine car mechanic is spending all of their time while they're driving that car thinking about all of the engineering dimensions that have to go into making that Mercedes work. They just enjoy the ride. And, uh, and I think that's the difficulty. Now, teach people to drive. You can learn to drive without knowing how Mercedes built that engine. You can learn to appreciate a piece of literature before you need to understand how the author created it. Mm. And I think it's the horse and cart syndrome for me. Yeah. From, a, from a dodgy Shakespeare's expert website, I read that uh, one of the main motivation of Shakespeare, for like one of the main for, um, motivation for him to write uh, Romeo and Juliet was that he tried to tell uh, the teenagers of his time to slow down, to, to, uh, to be patient, don't rush things, don't, don't just meet someone and the next day you're like, we're going to get married or I'm going to kill myself, like yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, obviously, Romeo and Juliet didn't do that. No. Um, first, I want to ask, uh, is there any merit behind this motivation? And now, yeah. now that I've read this, I have an imagery in my head where it's kind of like, 
Shakespeare sit down and keep murmuring, oh, kids these days, da 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 like that. Like, yeah. like, is that? I don't know. I mean, he was 18 when he had to marry his 28-year-old girlfriend, exactly. Anne Hathaway, because he knocked her up. So I, but he stayed, you know, he went back to Stratford every summer and, you know, built houses. Who knows what he felt about her, but he, he remained a loyal husband and father. He wrote Romeo and Juliet because the uh, the the Ital- original Italian poem had been translated in English. He was making a whack of money, and as gifted he was was a, as a, a writer, he was an actor, and uh, aspired to own his own theater company. And Romeo and Juliet was good business at the time. You know, it was. Uh, I mean, so like is was. Kill Bill parts one and two produced to say, be very careful who you marry and don't get married in a small chapel somewhere in the American West because someone might come in and shoot you and all your guests. You know, it's, you think, no, you know, Kill Bill was made because, you know, there was a filmmaker who made a lot of money, but he had a compelling story he wanted to tell. And definitely Romeo and Juliet is a compelling story. And that's where the story continues on in various forms. What is it about the passion of young love? One, two words that come up in Shakespeare a lot, and they're in Midsummer I Dream, and the concepts drive all the way through. It's apprehension and comprehension. There are times in life where we are, can only apprehend what's going around on around us, that you know, that essential meaning of the word, we're seized by something. Something takes hold of us. And we haven't time to comprehend it, to understand it. We just give in to the moment. And something I think about passionate love and young love speaks to that. And that's the theme of Romeo and Juliet, that you fall in love, head over here. You can't control yourself. You're just seized by it. It apprehends you. And there isn't time to comprehend it. And you won't listen if people around you you know, to say, slow down, take time, think about your life. The madness of apprehension prevents that. In Miss Umrad's dream, he says, lovers, madmen, and poets are all of imagination compact. They're all seized by something. The poet struggles to comprehend it, though. The madman can never, you know, comprehend his fantasies because he's in the midst of them, nor can the lover in the moment of love, comprehend it. And that's the struggle. What's interesting in Shakespeare is you take the young lovers, like Romeo and Juliet, or the lovers in Midsummer Night's Dream, and contrast them with his older lovers. uh, Kate and Petruchio and Tamia the Shrew, uh, Anthony and Cleopatra, much later. And there's a really studied difference, particularly the good ones, the ones who understand the dangers of of, of rushing headlong into anything. they're reluctant to let the apprehension seize them. So I think it's really that. He's really fascinated by when we lose control of ourselves and then how we get control back. Even an old man king, like King Lear, when his anger and his disappointment and his unhappiness with the end of his life takes control of him. And he does a lot of irresponsible things. And then he has to get back that self-control Later in the play, and you get an extraordinarily moving moment where he, he understands what really mattered to him. Yeah. Uh, do you read any foreign literature, like let's say Spanish literature? I, I, I used to read a lot of Italian literature, and I really like Italian culture. But, uh, but less now. I, I mostly now read poetry, you know, and I'm belong to a number of uh, organizations where you get lots of poetry by 
young authors, authors from different backgrounds. I become more and more involved with poetry because you can linger over it for a long time. I've read novels less and less, you know, in my older age, and poetry more and more. Uh, Poetry probably deserves its own episode, but, like, um, for me, I just never understood the genius behind poetry. Like, obviously, it's good because everyone around me said it's good. (laughs) But I just never really look at it and go... This is brilliant. Yeah. I never had that moment. Yeah, you know, years ago when I was running Champlain, uh, a very good colleague of mine at the time, Sean Kane, who's now retired, uh, he was close friends with, who were at that point, some of Canada's leading poets. And one of them, Robert Brinkhurst, is, um, I think he has a PhD in physics, in fact, but an extraordinary intelligent man. And he was very interested in the relationship between poetry and mathematics. So we had a whole week where we brought in poets and mathematicians, and they talked about what they had in common. And that was the point at which the thing I'd always felt, that an equation and a poem were about the same thing, elegance. Can you say that so well that I can feel its correctness even before I understand it? And there used to be a course at Queen's. One of my teachers when I was in graduate school, Bill Barnes, who was a 3M award winner, he had together with a professor of math a course called Math and Poetry. And each year they would take 20 mathematicians and 20 English students, and they would study poetry and equations together. That's interesting. No, and by the end of the year they would see this relationship that poetry is a form of linguistic equation. It's just words instead of numbers. And how can I put together you know, numbers or words in such a way that ev- it, it evokes an answer to something. It evokes something that science or humanism has been searching for. And you can kind of say, aha, I get that. That's, that's really good. It does that, you know, and if that makes some sense to you, that's what you're looking for in poetry. You know, the same thing you would find, I'm sure that you've found in math at different times, you think, Why don't we do who that figured that out? Well, Sean and I talked about it. And at one point, a guy named David Poole, who's now retired, who was another 3M award winner, he came to this thing, and he and I talked about it. But there was just, you know, it's like there's just so much to do. And when the, um, the, the Bachelor of Arts and Sciences started, it was supposed to do things like that. But it just, you know, never did. I'd still would, you know, t- I just have lost. I, I have a couple of colleagues still in math. I always thought it would be an extraordinary kind of upper-year course, a fourth-year course, you know, to uh, take students with a good background in math, a good background in poetry, and let them teach one another what it was about each discipline. Because I really like that story, um, Richard Feynman, the physicist. Yeah. He and his friend, an artist friend, taught, taught, like, every weekend he would teach him art, and the other... The other no, he would teach him physics, yeah. and the other weekend, uh, the artist friend would teach him arts because, and they were like, "Hey, we're both gonna yeah. become Da Vinci," yeah. and and I find that story very interesting, and I want something like that. No, and Da Vinci is an interesting kind of figure to bring in there because we talk about someone who's a Renaissance person you now who has their hand in so many different fields, but part of that is each of those fields is a quest, you know, to kind of get just an echo of an answer to a mystery that the explorer feels. And you feel that with Da Vinci. Does he even know what he's looking for? I don't know, but he, he just searches 
you know, whatever he has lost in the attic, he's looking in every box in the attic to find it. And I often think that about intellectual pursuits. Sometimes we're not encouraged to look in enough boxes. If you come to university, you're searching for something. Where are you going to find it? More and more in the, you know, what, how old am I now? Geez, I've been teaching for 40 years at university now. And one thing I think has happened that I'm a little disappointed in is we don't encourage people to look through as many boxes anymore. We assume when they arrive in the attic, they know what they're looking for. Mm. And we say, I think it's in the box down there in, in, in the third aisle on the left. If you just lift that sheet, I think it's a little box that says stuff from grandma. Look in there. You know, to, instead of saying to them, uh, look for the boxes and see what you find. When I first went as an undergraduate, and I've got colleagues who had this same experience, a professor who I really loved, and she said, look, when you do research, go to a library with open stacks and wander through all the stacks. Don't just go look up the books that you think you need and get them off the shelf, but wander in the sociology section. Go to the fine arts section. Just look at the titles on the spines take down an interesting book and flip through it. Because she says, you'll never know where you'll find the perspective on your subject that will surprise you and your reader. And that, I think, is, you know, I don't know that we encourage that anymore. Not, uh, I mean, it's harder and harder now because we want virtual libraries. I mean, our library got rid of a huge hundreds of thousands of volumes during the conversion. And lots of books are on a central warehouse facility. And when you order it, it'll come up from there to any university in Ontario. Other books just were gotten rid of. And the idea was, well, they're all online. You can find them at Gutenberg right, yeah. or you can find them. But that's not the same. That means I would like to find that book by author X. So I'll punch her name into Gutenberg and it'll come up. When you have to wander through the stacks not knowing what you're looking for, something will surprise you. Right. you know? And that's the thing. If you come here saying, I want to get degree X, and I take these courses because I'm going to go to medical school, or I'm going to be an engineer, there's all kinds of boxes in the attic you never open. And a university is a repository of just a whole bunch of stuff that human beings thought were interesting over the years. You know, like I look at my house now and having emptied my father's house, and I think, where did all that stuff come from? <laughs> and I think universities should be, they just, like museums and galleries, they just collect all this human stuff. And you've got to be able to search it. Now, maybe algorithms will allow us to find virtual attics where we can go through all the boxes. But no, I don't feel it yet. And there is, you know, there's nothing like, you know, just having it in your hand or wandering into classrooms on subjects you've never thought of before. Not, uh, another thing I was encouraged to do as an undergraduate was just go sit on lectures in any discipline I wanted. They would just say, oh, you know, that first year course, it's so big. Not, uh, even in physics, there's 150 people in the room. They won't notice an extra person. Half the, half the majors won't turn up anyway. And I would do it a lot because I'd get bored a lot and my attention would wander. And I'd just, you know, walk through the halls go sit in a lecture hall and listen. You know, to, and sometimes it'd be baffling. And if you're in the back row, you could slip out. Half the room was slipping out anyway. <laughs> but sometimes you'd hear something, you'd think, well, that's really interesting. I could use that. And, uh, and it's that kind of wandering curiosity.
You know, that we don't have time for it. People say, you got to get on with it. You know, geez, you got to get your degree. Go to university, get your degree, go to grad school, you know, to find a career, buy a house, <laughs> to uh, start contributing to the economy. Not to, and, uh, One of my favorite TV shows, The Newsroom, uh, they did a little, c- uh, the main character did a little comparison between uh, Wikipedia and, like, actual encyclopedia. Yeah, and yeah. he was saying, like, well, in, you can't browse anything in Wikipedia. No, you can like, you can flip That's flip it. through encyclopedia and be like, "Hey, uh, I can learn something about uh, Wi-Fi." No, and then but in Wikipedia, you just need to you just need to know what you're looking for, right? No, exactly. That's that's exactly what I'm you know thinking about here. And you know, one of the things I've worked on a lot in the last ten years is the Encyclopedia Britannica. I spent a lot of time last year. It was the 250th anniversary of the publication of the first issue, the first part of the letter A. So I spent uh, time in Scotland. <laughs> I, you know, that sounds comical. No, it, first part of letter A. <laughs> it's really funny because they they didn't really know what they were doing, and the French encyclopedia is massive. You know, like it fills whole vaults. So these were Scots in Edinburgh. They were just trades guys. They were printers and paper makers, and they wanted to make money out of the encyclopedia. So they had a plan. And then it took them so long to finish the letter A, they had to make all the rest of the entries much shorter <laughs> to get through it in three volumes. But when you flip through it, it's just fascinating. And I can remember as a kid, they used to, anybody in my generation will recall it, you used to get books in grocery stores for loyalty coupons. So if you shopped regularly and kept your receipts, you know, there would, and there would be dictionaries, and there were always little encyclopedias you could collect and you you know you shop there regularly you get volume one and all the way through i used to love those because you didn't have to read them sequentially which Mm -hmm. is all i've never read a a novel from the beginning to the end i always skip around i read the end first because i kind of want to know how you get there like if i'm going to the zoo in toronto i figure okay i'm going to the zoo in toronto i'm more interested in the journey than the zoo. So what I loved about encyclopedias, there was none of that problem. You would just skip around, open yeah. them anywhere. There's no you know, continuity. There's no plot. Yeah. yeah you know, there's no, and yet, in a way, there is a plot. You know, how can I bring all these things together? You know, and it, uh, yeah, no, I agree with that very much. You know, to, there was a, um, who was it? His name's Ian Brown, who writes for the Globe and Mail, does things on uh, CBC. He did a lovely piece in the Globe a couple of years ago on picking up an encyclopedia that a neighbor had left out on the lawn, you know, those free book things, and taking it home and just realizing what you're talking about, you know, browsing, just, you know, free-falling through ideas. That, uh, okay, so there's one piece of, one specific piece uh, of Spanish literature I want to talk about. Oh, okay. It's uh, uh, Don Quixote. Oh, okay, that's fine. We, that's good. <laughs> I was wondering if you the name one I didn't know. Don Quixote's, yeah. Uh, what about it? So for the listener who is not familiar with Don Quixote, basically yeah. this novel, unless you want to summarize it. No, you no, me, you uh, summarize it. No, this novel is about an old man named Don Quixote. You, yeah. uh, he reads a lot of chivalry yeah. and uh, chivalry fantasy books. That's good. That's what and chivalry is. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantasy, for sure. Yeah. Very well um, done. <laughs> to a point where he himself <laughs> wanted to be a knight and have a knightly quest. So he went ahead and uh, with questing and caused a lot of trouble for others. Yeah. In the original, there's an overarching theme that the reality is often more interesting 
yeah. uh, than fantasy because yeah. in the in the in the uh, uh, like blindly chasing fantasy is just gonna miss uh, like make you miss the potential of reality. Yeah. Because in Don Quixote, like there's a second cast of very interesting characters, but he didn't care because it's not yeah. about sh- it's not about night quest. Yeah. But in the modern adaptation of the uh, of this uh, novel, it seems like. They have taken a spin on this and focus on Don Quixote being like saying like, oh, he's a dream chaser in a ruthless world, in a cruel world. And he's sticking sticking on his dream, which is 180 degree yeah. like different from the original intention. Like, do you have any comment on, on this? Like on people interpretate something completely different like not even just a little bit different, completely different than what the author has intended. Well, our notion of the hero really shifts. No, when we get to what we call the romantic period, and we begin to start thinking of heroism as representing you no know, taking on impossible challenges, you know, to, and standing alone, you know, against the against the tides, and it, that's just not there for Cervantes any more than it is for Shakespeare. And we've got a tendency to take Sancho Panza and just turn him into a, a clown, rather than seeing him, you know, as that uh, check to Quixote. Now, in the novel is that way in which Ponza himself at the end begins to think, no, there's something important about a transcendent vision. The world just can't always be about what's practical and what applies. And they almost kind of switch roles towards the end. Like when Quixote dies and says, all my life, you know, I've wasted my life chasing windmills and, you know, how could I possibly have been so deluded to do this and Panza says no no Panza who all along has been turning to us and said can you believe this idiot <laughs> he thinks he, he thinks that's a beautiful angelic damsel in distress no, have you looked at that woman is there anything redeeming about her and there's that way in which Panza's realism kind of is offset by Quixote's idealism no and it's not that you know they're both sides of the same coin or that thing we say well you would never appreciate the good in life unless you know the bad that's cliched bullshit you know but there is a way in which you know the novel struggles with you know those two aspects of humanness you know to can i go on all my life you know believing in a better world is am i deluding myself by looking on the misery of the world around me and saying no, no, this isn't bad. We can make something of this. Am I deluded to say life is beautiful when I'm living in the middle of you know, of a disaster? And you know, and Sancho Ponce is saying this is a disaster. This is a disaster. And there is a balance between the two. But what makes the disaster bearable is maybe the other. And it's storytelling. Because the thing about Quixote that's quite extraordinary when the second part comes out. It's been so popular, it gets pirated everywhere. People are printing the book and writing false second halves and stealing Cervantes' money. And Cervantes, like Shakespeare, liked money. And people are stealing his book. There's no copyright laws then to protect him. So in that second volume, there's a scene, I don't know if you remember, where Quixote gets into a printing house and attacks it. And he sees... I didn't actually read the second volume. Oh, he sees (laughs) his story there. And he says, this isn't me. This is false. Someone is spreading lies. And it's, 
it's Cervantes' way of saying, if you got that other edition, it's not the real thing. It's a ripoff. That, that's why I <laughs> heard, too. It's, it's a ripoff. Yeah. This, is, this is the real artifact. The other is fake. This is the real thing. You know, to, you know, and, and passing it back and forth, and it speaks to the moment. It's quite extraordinary. The same thing happens. Like, uh, Anthony Burgess, when he writes um, uh, Clockwork Orange, the character Alex and it, 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 that weird book that is such a dark piece of dystopian uh, uh, futurism, you know, this world of violence and government domination where Alex has this gang of violent hoodlums. But when Alex breaks into the house at the crucial point where a writer lives and they violently assault the writer's wife and then they beat him so severely he ends up an invalid, uh, Alex looks at his typewriter. For all it's futuristic, he can't imagine a computer. And he pulls a piece of paper out of the author's typewriter. And he reads it. It says, A Clockwork Orange. What a stupid title for a book. And it's harkening back to that kind of meta-narrative moment in Quixote, where Quixote says, Don Quixote Part 2. I am Part 2. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh-huh. But I am the true and only Christ. Who are these pretenders? You know? <laughs> and you've got the same kind of thing. And it's a lovely kind of echo because in this dark dystopian novel, Burgess wants us to remember Quixote. And in a really disturbing way, he's saying, Alex, the violent young man, has the potential to be a Quixote. How, why are Quixote and Alex the similar figure? Is it just irony? And I think not, because Alex is full of imagination. He can see other worlds. Not, uh, and it's only because of the corruptness of the world he's living in that his vision isn't translatable. And if there's something of that in Cervantes, there is something in my world now where we don't think we need these visionaries. Not? And you know, Burgess is saying there's something in our world now where we have you know, corrupted so much that our visionaries you know, commit acts of violence rather than acts of wonder. But it's that, that, that self-referential moment is extraordinary. And it's so like modern and postmodern and contemporary, you know, the character who is reading his own book, and you know, there's those it's things like, that like you get. It's those things that make wall. unusual books. Yeah, you know, like that's what makes you know the novel Don Quixote so extraordinary. Because you think, wow, you know, here's somebody who seems to have seen through time as a writer, you know, so, which is one of the things I think is there in Shakespeare. That thing we call timelessness, you know, is you know is is there for both of them. If you liked that novel at all, you should read Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy. Yeah, I'll look into that. It's completely chaotic. I was trying to segue from that question to Nick's, but it didn't work, so I'm just going to ask you what the question is supposed <laughs> yeah. to be. Yeah. Um, do you think that the book belongs to the reader or the author? Because like, my original yeah, yeah, question is yeah. tra- it's like, oh, the interpretation is completely different from what it, us- uh, what it yeah. used to be, uh, the yeah. original intent. Like, yeah. Do you yeah. have any comment? Yeah, I'll give you a, a, I'll give you a, a quick no, to smart out on the answer to that, no, we'll go on. Who bought the book or stole the book? The reader. So it belongs yeah. to you. No, no, yeah, so no, the writer, she got her money. Our guy would got her money. So why is she trying to tell me how I should be reading The Handmaid's Tale? It's right. mine now. I'll do yeah. what I want. And uh, no, so I, I think it always does. You know, mm-hmm. to, uh, in every way, you know, and that's one of the ways in which even religious books, there's always that struggle finally in. Uh, in institutional style religions, whether it's Judaism, Islam, or Christianity, no, does God's word only belong 
in the utterance of the voice of the priest of the imam? Well, can I speak it? Why can't I? If, if it's written for me, why can't the book belong to me? Right. And in all faiths, there are points where there are groups in the faith that say, I don't need a priest. Let me read the book. Yeah, I can interpret yeah, it myself. Let me read yeah. it myself. Yeah. So, well, yeah, to, well, I do agree that like people can have their own interpretation. But let's say it's a scientific research. Yeah. Then I don't want people to have their own interpretation. Like if a biology research paper said that this kind of bacteria doubles in five hours, there's no other no, way to interpret yeah, it. No, no. Uh, but like, where do you, where is the line then? Like, what, what about newspaper? Yeah. The, well, you throw a newspaper out anyway, so it's the kind of thing. And newspapers are a lot every day. You know, they say, "Well, sorry, we changed you the story today." Yeah, we got that wrong. Because one of the things about a great thing about a newspaper is that's what I love about because I love newspapers, and they don't appear at all. Anywhere in the world, a true newspaper, you don't get any of them until the 17th century in Holland and then in uh, English-speaking countries. And they, that's when you're, you're living in a world where what you want is, what do I need to know today about my world and how much do things cost? There's never been a newspaper you know, that did not need advertising to survive. They're kind of wedded together, those. So newspapers are odd kinds of elements. And they change a lot. Newspapers are always retracting things, saying, oh, sorry, we got that wrong. We right, spelled the name yeah. wrong. So there's a way in which no newspapers are just useful things. I mean, it used to be when you were done with the newspaper, you kept it for toilet paper because uh, it was no good the next day. Finding <laughs> complete runs of old newspapers is almost impossible because people just threw them out. And paper was expensive, so people would collect the paper, mulch it. You know, originally it was all made out of linen, and they would just recycle it. It was always recycled. Well, there's something about those books that once I've got it, uh, I want to keep it there. I want to bind it, have it on a shelf, and then be able to go back and look at it again. That notion there's something enduring about the book. If I keep the book because I feel whatever is in it, even if I haven't understood it, will endure. With the newspaper, it's information. You know, and it might be wrong, or they might change wrong. Like you know, when we were warming up and talking about medical reports, depending on who got the next largest grant, coffee will either be a carcinogenic <laughs> or a wonder drug. Yeah. But it just depends on who got a grant, you know, and whether or not they, there was anything more interesting in the news that day. So, uh, yeah. But you were thinking something differently, I think, uh, with newspapers. Uh, right? uh, no, I, I, yeah. I don't have a very strong no. idea about it yet because yeah. I'm because I'm still like kind of figuring out like They've I'm disappeared also flip myself yeah like people really don't like reading novels on the screen you know and you want to carry a book around with you and that's where you know people you know had said oh the book's going to die everything's virtual now no we'll all get our e-books and who would ever want to buy a book again those were people who didn't like books to begin with right, right yeah and they thought books were about information and books have come back with such. I mean, there is more volume books sold, poetry books sold now than than there has almost ever been. You know that the really people wanting books has really grown, and even independent bookstores are coming back against the uh, the indigos and the uh, no the and, and the, yeah and all of those. But along you know, to, you know so so that's you know just strongly there. You know that that return of. Uh, no, of the book. What were we talking about? We were talking about uh, interpretation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, about interpretation. Even there. No, how do we get on to this uh, digression? Because oh, I, I was, I was, I was asking. Well, I don't want people to interpret scientific research 
wrongly. Like yeah. I want people to just read it and be like, okay, yeah. that's that's the uh, that's the result of the study. Ah, but for newspaper, which is yeah. Yeah. different, and especially yeah, for fiction, then I yeah. like I think people yeah, should have their own interpretation. Yeah, no, and I think for newspapers, that's what I was thinking about. Nobody really wants to keep them unless they're a hoarder. But there's something about the book where you feel I'm not finished with it yet. And it'll mean something different to me next time. You know, to, and I want to hold on no, no, to that book. You know, to, no, I want to you know, build a library. You know, very early when books first started appearing, they suddenly, because they were very expensive, and one of the interesting things looking at wills for the estates of people in Europe, you know, once books really begin to grow and, and, and reach different classes of people, is what books did people leave in their will and who do they leave them to? Because it was kind of a way of saying, what did they think was important? You know, was it John mm. Bunyan? Uh, was it Shakespeare? Was it Jane Austen? What had they collected? And there were those wealthy collectors who have massive libraries. But as middle class people and tradespeople began to own books, it's intriguing to see what mattered to them. What, what did they carry like a talisman? Not, uh, what was the, the thing they, they thought was worth holding on to? All right, let's switch the topic uh, a little bit. I, uh, from my from my research, I think that another area of interest you have is humor. Oh no, not really. Uh, <laughs> is that is that? That's, I was trying to be funny. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I I I, I want to talk about uh, 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 a little bit about it. Yeah. So h- how does hu- humor function differently under different cultural contexts? So, for yeah. example, yeah. Uh, the Office, yeah. the British version yeah. and the American version. Uh, the British one, they have an asshole for a boss, yeah. and we kind of watch them because it's funny to see them suffer. Yeah. The American version, other than the first season where they follow the script pretty closely, yeah. uh, other than that, like they have a doofus boss, they yeah. have like an idiot boss, yeah. and we like to watch it because of the funny, stupid interaction yeah. they have, rather than oh, it's funny because they're suffering. Yeah, like. Um, how's that? How how's the cultural differences come into play here? Well, I think one of the things I mean, with Ricky Gervais in particular, but with a kind of British humor, they're, they're as much as Brent seems like a total asshole in the office. No, and you just cringe because he does and says things that you just think, oh my. God, how could you yeah. ever survive that? You know, you get that powerful cringe comedy. I don't think it ever gets that as extreme in the American version, whereas Curb Your Enthusiasm does. I mean, Larry David mm. likes that cringe comedy and really pushes it hard. That uh, the interesting thing with Gervais and with that office, and it's it's true of one kind of, of British comedy, is eventually we begin to see other dimensions of the character. Now, the office in the United States went on and on and on, and then it just it became, finished. Yeah. You know, they just had to tie it up in the same way, you know, the Big Bang went on and on and on, and then you sort of felt people had to get married and they had to just go away, and then we'll start all over with young Sheldon, you know, as if, the, <laughs> as if the first series wasn't enough of a waste of time, but find yet another way to. But, you know, Brent, eventually you began to understand and never pity. And in the final episode, he gets his own back. No, on the area supervisor. I guess actually I tell him to f*** off. And you, know, and you get the sense that 
that this individual who kept embarrassing himself and who made us cringe and who we were so happy not to be was always aware of what people thought of him. No, he was never... And it, it makes you feel slightly guilty then as a viewer. You know, where you think, oh, yeah. You know, to, I didn't want to get too close to him, but I never considered that, you know, he felt that loneliness. He knew people didn't like him and he wasn't sure why. And that revenge, and he gets a proper girlfriend. And, and it's not magical. You kind of suddenly see, oh, a couple of people understand him. No, and, and then he's increasingly so. I've liked that about the office in particular. There's none of that kind of complexity. You know, with the American version, you never kind of feel that you yourself have judged too soon. You know, to, you know, so, right. but it, it, the difference between American and British humor is curious at times because they feed one another in you know in different ways. Probably. You begin to think British humor has fed American humor more in the way that American rock music fed British rock music until you look at Native American humor coming up through Mark Twain you know, and figures like that and, uh, and folk humor you know, so strong in the, in, in the U.S., that irony of the, you know, of the country man or woman who looks like a fool that really isn't. You know, who looks like they'll be taken advantage of by city folk. Although that's there in British humor too. So it, uh, the distinctions are there are, are strong. I, maybe the most important distinction is the class distinction, because American humor doesn't have the layers of class that British humor does. You know, where there is certainly a, a class of people who are just better than you, and. You know, they become the objects of our disdain, and they're the people we're striking out against. You know, if anything, in America, just the wealthy person. But they haven't been you know, in charge of your people forever, except when you look at African-American humor, you know, where the slave humor and slave culture says, oh, there's a ruling class, and they'll never admit us in. They won't ever admit us. So I often find aspects of African-American humor you know, compares well with certain aspects of British working-class humor because in both cases they're saying you can never trust the man. You can never trust those Oxbridge, Eaton, educated guys. They will never let you in to the corporation. They'll never let you into the club. You know, they're just playing with you. You can never trust. You know, they'll never let you into their white neighborhood. They will never fully integrate you. You know, you will always be you know, black to them. And I think on both sides of the Atlantic, there are groups of people who, and a type of humor that gets quite rough that just says, no, there's a divide here. And on one side are the rich, you know, privileged people. On the other side are the blackened people, you know, the people who have been trodden down. You know, to, and, and, and there you get you know, interesting kinds of, of similarities. And what kind of humor do you follow? What do you like yourself? Uh, it's, it's, I don't know. Do you, do you follow a lot of stand-up? Because that's a really interesting genre, stand-up, really. And it's, there's nothing like it in history. It's so different. I watch yeah. the bit. I watch yeah. a bit, but like, I always have a problem with, like, I find watching TV shows very yeah. exhausting. Like, yeah. It's just a lot of effort yeah. to watch a lot of it. Yeah. So, like anything longer than two hours I really gotta like alright I'm spending two nights to watch this like yeah. that no. so sometimes I watch clip of it 
Yeah. But recently, I, I like recent favorite comedy yeah. funny stuff is yeah. Rick and Morty for me. Oh, it is. Rick and Morty is so funny oh, for me. You know what? I don't know that. I, I, I should tell me something about it because that's not something I've watched. Well, well, and Rick uh, and Morty is and it's, uh, it, it it's so not clever. Yeah. There, there's a joke, right? Saying like, "Oh, you need to be oh how smart you have to be to oh to understand a hidden joke behind it." It's like there's nothing of that. It's yeah. it's yeah. just it's just fart jokes and like, but yeah. then there are character development to a point uh, yeah. it's just like oh you can see morty as a character who in the beginning yeah. didn't speak up because that's just who he is yeah. and then at the end of season three like the latest season yeah. like he's so much more dominant and and it's funny to see the dynamic change in between rick who was the 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 the, the, the grandfather who yeah. like who was the the dominant one yeah. to less or well, still dominant and 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 like for me and it's just so funny and then jokes and just the continuity because they have like they set up a joke for like two episodes before it actually happened no, and it's just like no. all these things i find it really really funny and it just and it's just like like when i watch comedy stuff it's just like i just want to relax and i just yeah. want to watch things that don't don't make me like need to think about how funny it is yeah like no i understand that a lot i mean there's that uh there's a show that's in a second season now, a BBC show called Dairy Girls that a lot of my students watch. Because you get all the stuff. The international things are broken out because they're on Netflix. You can download them. And uh, what I like is a comedy that looks like it's completely removed from your reality. No, we are just completely laughing. Removed, removed from, from your rea- reality. You're uh, just laughing at it. And you can recognize it enough. And then suddenly... You know, it gets absorbed by the real. Like, starting to think about Dairy Hills, it's set in Londonderry during the Troubles. So there'll be all sorts of absurd things going on with these girls and their male English uh, cousin attending this Catholic girls' school. And then suddenly the problems of the, uh, you know, of the Irish resistance will come in. You know, and the Protestant IRA struggles and the bombings and the soldiers. Now to, and it's not that it silences the comedy, but it suddenly enriches it. Mm. It's not you feel oh people needed the comedy to get through the darkness. You kind of suddenly realize oh, the comedy was never an escape to begin with. You know the comedy was a part of it all. I've been thinking lately about kinds of comedy, which is what you're talking about, that are kind of finite. They're enclosed and they're entertaining and they're wonderful. And you know, at the end. You know, they cert- the, you know, the wagons are circled around the comedy. You know, and there's another kind of there's sort of infinite or open-ended where you suddenly begin to realize that the laughter actually is not excluding your world but drawing it in. You know, that you, it's, you know, and the second is the one I've always found you know, the, the most engaging. Although, while I say that, I think of a hundred examples of the first one that I really enjoyed, too. Not, uh, and, no, comedy is a very complicated thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, there are apps out there who yeah. help people to fall asleep. So, right. sometimes they play white noise. They play some relaxing music. There's a version where uh, they have somebody who has a nice voice yeah. to read out boring text. Usually, it's a uh, traveling yeah. journal. Yeah. So it so yeah. it'll be text like, uh, like this person is going through the the, the Mongolian grass yeah. field, and then the text is like, I'm on this trainee train going through this grassy grass, and you got some sheepy sheep over yeah. there like that, 
And when I learned of this, I was like, "This is how I was when I was in high school.、Yeah. I hated it. I hated those like so like just so much, so many adjectives.、Yeah. Just I don't care.、Yeah. And and like I got so impatient with、yeah. it. Like, do you have any? Do no, you have comment on this? Like, yeah, no, I really like it a lot because I've ever noticed about so many adjectives. Because it's a style of writing they used to encourage you to do early in your education: descriptive writing, where you'd use as many words as you could,、mm-hmm. you no, know, to say nothing, as、right. opposed to the other. How, how? That's what I meant about elegance in equations and poetry. How few words does it take to say something lasting? Like impactful per yeah, word. Yeah, get it down. Like how can you pack? And you know, with extraordinary equations, you think, oh my god, just unpacking that, you can fill the whole room.、Mm-hmm. You no, know? and then you can put it all back together in that equation. It all fits back in. You know, you no, know, unlike so many things you take out of their box. And I think literature needs to do that, and culture needs to do that. It, you know, if it's too busy to no purpose, it does bore you. That app I really like. Do you watch The Simpsons? A little bit, not that There, much. There's a famous episode. If you maybe you think of it right away, where Homer he goes to a sushi restaurant and and what's the fish if it's improperly cut, it poisons you and you die. And,、uh, oh yeah, yeah. What's it called?、Uh, I can't I, think. I, I we know what we're talking. Yeah, about. yeah, we know what we're talking. Yeah. About. yeah. So he's eaten everything. He eats the whole damn menu, and then he says, "I want that." And the waiter says, "Oh no!" Yeah, he says, "I want that." So. They go back to tell the sushi chef, except the sushi chef is out having a smoke or something. So I don't know the dishwasher or something prepares it for him. <laughs> so it's improperly cut, and they run out. Says, "Oh no, no, don't eat that!" But then it's too late because it's、uh-huh. Homer. So he's told he's just going to die. So he goes around with his bucket list. Pufferfish. Yeah, is it, yeah. Isn't that?、Uh, I don't know. But at any rate, he、point. goes no, around.、Oh, it, yeah. they, I think it does puff up. Whatever. But anyways, he goes around, does all of his bucket lists, and it's all crazy stuff. At the end of it, he comes back <laughs> and he's sitting in his chair. Waiting to die, so he decides maybe he should read the Bible. So he listens to Larry King reading the Bible. <laughs> he gets to the Old Testament stuff, which is just a list of names of people who had died. You know, and Egad begat Ugad begat Ingad begat No God began What God began A God. You know, there's that, and it's that Larry King voice, and he falls asleep drooling to it. Well, he, you know, so that's what it made me think. And the wonderful, but he wakes up. This is the type of comedy that, like happens seldom in The Simpsons because The Simpsons is very close. You know, it's it really doesn't shake your world the way South Park does. But this one was quite powerful <laughs> because he wakes up, and he's not dead. And all the promises he made when he thought he would die, about changing his lifestyle, the first thing you see him doing is sitting in front of the television, wasting his time again, drinking beer and <laughs> eating pork rinds. You know that, you know, and it's, it was a wonderful kind of way of saying, you don't change,、mm-hmm. you don't change, and that's okay, that's okay, but you're not going to change. But the Larry King reading Deuteronomy is great. You should just punch it in, say Homer dies, and listen to Larry King reading the Bible. That'll put you to sleep any time. Yeah, I just when I was reading like any, I I don't know, like、yeah. it just so it always. I always just so got got so impatient with those yeah、things. no I I looks at, I'm like you I told you I always read the end of the book first I look at a novel this size my wife works through it carefully she would never think of even skipping a chapter I mention it to my students and they no they just you know, how do you oh know they have they、that? don't believe me you know <laughs> and I, you know I'm just impatient too I'm thinking geez you're going to take a thousand pages to get the end I want to make sure it's worthwhile、mm-hmm. so then I you know it's like if I'm supposed to be excited on Christmas morning at the gift you gave me I want to unwrap it first. <laughs> 
and find out, do I have to fake being excited or am I going to be excited? Then I'll wrap it up and put it back under the tree. And then I know where I'm going. That's how I feel about reading. Is this ending worth getting to? Right. And if it is, I'll go. Because what I want to enjoy is how you get there. And if there's too many adjectives, I'm going to be really angry at you. But if it's a worth, you know, if the ending is exciting, probably they know how to get there. I've always felt it's the best way to decide whether or not this book is worth reading. Read the last chapter. You know. All right. <laughs> I go back. <laughs> just to, just I don't if know this advice do, do you think, for everyone. Do you think if my wife, when she met me, had known I was going to look like this 35 years later, do you think she would have married me? Probably not, if she had any oh. taste at all. So that's what I'm saying. If I am a novel, my wife should have looked at the last chapter, and then she would have put it back on the shelf and picked another book. That's my analogy. Right. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, um, so, like earlier, you've you, yeah. you've mentioned that you never was really good at reading. Yeah. Like reading. I was good at it. I just found it boring. <laughs> So is, is the act of reading important? Like what yeah. value can you extract that is solely that you can only get in reading that you can't get in something like audiobook? I don't know what there is except for tactility. Because you figure, how are you receiving language? So if you're leaving saying in an audio way, there's certain voices. There's a reason why, you know, radio voices usually sound the way they do, you know, they're... How are you receiving the words? So my sense is, is there something about the tactility of pages that matters? You know, about it may for me be more about reading with your hands than with your eyes. Not you know, so holding the book, not you know, turning the pages, being able to put it in your pocket or not, being able to return it to a shelf in your library, knowing where it fits in. The physicality of reading, I think, matters a lot. Not a, so am I going to get this message not a, lying down comfortably you know, on uh, my favorite sofa or you know, in a lawn chair out in my backyard? No, is this book going to be my comfort zone while I commute to work for an hour and a half every day on a train from the suburbs? You know, I think how important a book can be then. And if it's just for escape, that's fine. But uh, but it becomes your most important travel companion, you know that 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 commute. You may spend more time with a book than you end up spending with your wife if you're commuting that whole week, long working days and coming and going in the morning. So it's that physicality of the book. When I began to really fall in love with books and with reading, I fell in love with books before I fell in love with reading. Early on, I couldn't see the point. I'd rather ride my bike. I'd rather go outside and be physical. But once I began to appreciate the book as a physical thing, I immediately became a collector of books. And, and to this day, I have a massive library. And I, you know, t I, I just love to take down books and look at them and touch them. And in my own library, look and know I will never probably read that book again but I would never give it away. No, no, because it belongs on the shelf beside those other books. If I took that book down and donated it to the library or decided, oh, I need space, maybe the books beside it would be lonely. It's its physical it's place. Right. Just, it has to yeah. stay there, just yeah. leave it there. So that's what I would say about it. You know, what's important about reading? The physicalness of it. Where do you read? 
Now, is it a comfort to you? Everybody has a favorite place for reading that they like to read and holding that book. That's where the screen hasn't won out. You know, because holding a little e-book, it's not the same. Even when they try to make it, you've got them now apps where you can swash your finger and it'll make yeah. the sound of a page turning. Just That's not, right. not how pages turn. Mm-hmm. That's a sound effect, you know. Everybody knows, you know, that you have to touch the page and turn it. And if you're really interested, you might bend it down. There are apps where you can actually virtually bend the page <laughs> so you can go back to it. Anything you can do to imitate a book and you can figure, no, that's, no, it's like having an inflatable girlfriend. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same thing, you know. Yeah. And, and that's that business of touch. I think we forget sometimes. And that might be a thing with teaching. We think reading is an abstract, a silent thing. You sit at your desk and you do it. It's a physical thing. You have to be comfortable first at all. I think a lot of, of students I've talked to who grew up with writing problems, much of it was physical. Not just concentration, but having to sit in those uncomfortable chairs and not being able to move around. Not being told, here, go where you want to go for an hour. Read as much as you can read and come back and we'll talk about it. But, uh, no. Because I'm thinking, I'm I'm still not exactly yeah. great at reading books. Yeah. Like it takes me very long yeah. to read a book. That's okay. Yeah, and yeah. and and I and uh, like it took me three weeks or something to read like Animal Farm, and Animal yeah. Farm is like yeah, like hundred pages. Um, yeah. But um, but that's why that's again is that problem? And some other people apologize for being slow readers. I don't understand it. If you're a slow eater, it might be because you're enjoying your food. Why should you you know? No, no one rewards anybody for sucking up a meal. No, right. you're yeah. always told your mother will say, "No, no, you should chew that more times. Why are you eating so quickly? Don't swallow your food whole. All that stuff." And yet, no, there still is a notion. Oh, I'm a slow reader. I don't read quickly enough. I don't get it. If you read Animal Farm, that's enough. Because I, Animal Farm is a, a thing. You you acquainted yourself. You were in the space of animal. What's time got to do with reading? Uh, reading is a spatial thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I used to I think that, and I used to think like, oh, I'm, s- I'm no. so bad at reading. No. Like, and then, and then like, I became. Re- I basically I felt like that's yeah. a little revelation I have for my, yeah. with myself is that reading is not that important. That's how yeah. no, yeah. It, listen, yeah, yeah. no, no, I'm I as like. Yeah. I can just I can listen to audiobook yeah, and, and that, it will be the yeah. same. Like that's yeah. how I felt like. And you know what's good about listening to the audiobook? It's still about the senses. It's a different tactility. If you no know, the reading I'm talking about is not visual. It's not visual anyway. It's holding the book, owning the book, carrying it with you, bending the pages, it's writing on the page. It's all about touch. That's what it's about, right? This is a, it's an auditory experience. It's the delight of hearing things. Huh? And, and all the way in which how important hearing is to us in so many ways. You know, to, you know, to, you know there's nothing more you know, delightful than getting away from the cacophony of a lot of noise you know, yeah. in Union <laughs> Station or on, you know, on and, and then you get to a more silent place or hearing. You know, if, if you, an audio, what I th- love about audio, and oh boy, those books have really taken off because, again, for a commuter, you can put on your headphones and listen to someone who reads effectively, someone who understands why punctuation is there. It turns reading into listening, and it makes the language on the page into musical notation. When you're listening to someone read you a book who reads it well, it's music. You know, so I think our notion that reading is something you do with your eyes is 
always wrong. The answer is an excuse. You're holding it then. There's a lot involved. And with the hearing thing, I, in, in many ways, I think that's a huge improvement. In fact, no, it's now a more important market is uh, taped books, auditory books, not to downloading books, listening to them on your computer, than e-books, reading them off a screen. Reading mm-hmm. off a screen doesn't work. Listening to note, uh, something through your computer does. So that's you're right about that. Auditory books you know, mm-hmm. are, you know, a, a, again, and emphasizing the right sense, you know, taking it in through your ears. Right, right. Who, who are the readers? Are any of them distinguished people, actors? You know, who's reading the books you listen to? Uh, um, I also think like listening to podcasts as well. Like not yeah. just reading. Like well, I always thought radio was the best thing. But uh, but I start, the one thing I sometimes regret not doing with career choices is staying in radio. I worked in radio for a while. And I really liked it. But it was precarious, you know, and we were an immigrant family and no one had ever gone to university before and I was the firstborn. So you're constantly being told, no, 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 you need to get a profession. You need to have a serial job. The last thing my mother wanted was me to stay in radio. But I loved it. I really loved it, you know. And that's what I love about podcasts because radio of all the new media of the 20th century, radio has never been damaged. Right? And podcasts have made it richer than ever. So, yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Not all of my kids, their primary uh, source now of, uh, of leisure uh, entertainment is podcasts. That's the, that's the first thing they turn to. Yeah. Uh, there is a list on Reddit, a user-voted list, yeah. uh, about books you must read at least once in your life. Yeah. And the top threes are The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. Number two is 1984. Yeah. And number three is Dune. Well, tell us everything you need to know about Reddit. That's, that's uh, yeah, I, I, I guess. But like, um, do you agree with the top three, or if, if I've not, never like, read Dune, and I didn't particularly like the movie, so I can't talk to that. Hitchhiker's Guide. I've never understood the fascination with it. I mean, I, I came up with it when it was added. I've never understood how it's persisted. It suggests to me there's still a lot of ex-hippies hanging around on Reddit <laughs> voting for <laughs> voting for Hitchhiker's Guide. Although I have colleagues who think, yeah, it's, you know, they had one book to take with them into the crematorium before <laughs> they get reduced to the ashes of eternity. It would be Hitchhiker's Guide. I can kind of see 1984, although I don't think it's re- – the language in it is really interesting. It's a concept. Like it has a powerful theme, and it keeps speaking to us. It keeps warning us about surrendering our freedoms and our liberties. Not to, so it wouldn't be my list, but I, don't, I, I can sense where they're coming from. We were talking about Reddit in one of my seminars this morning, so I'm thinking, yeah, sounds like Reddit to me. <laughs> uh, so what would be your top three book that you, you must read once before, like once in your life at least? I don't know. Right now, if I had... Uh, At this point in my life, I think King Lear means a lot to me. But then I'd rather see a play than read it. Right. Although I enjoy reading Shakespeare because I read it to teach and I enjoy telling people you've got to get it off the page. So that's a problematic choice, maybe. I would say, and I'm going to walk away from this and think of three others. 
Tristram Shandy is very high on my list. So I'm going to leave the Shakespeare off because I, I think you should see it rather than read it. But among novels, I find Tristram Shandy an extraordinary book. Whenever I go back to it, I wonder you know, why I haven't read it more than I have. And Moby Dick. And who's poet? I'm thinking of novels on just tons of poets are going through my head. You know, Auden, W.H. Auden, any collection of Auden's poetry. But even as I say that, I think, oh, but I put all poets on the list. If I've got to stick to that now, Tristram Shandy, Moby Dick, and uh, any volume of Auden. For someone like me who really didn't like English class in a, uh, in high school, do you have any advice for me on how to approach English literature now that I have like some interest in it again? The way you're doing, just read whatever appeals to you. Like, don't approach it any longer as an English class. That's unfortunately how it's been taught because we divide things into discipline. Listen to. Uh, you know, books, you know, stay with podcasts. And, uh, go where, you know, if there's people whose advice you enjoy, and they suggest something they've been reading, go off and read it, listen to it. And, uh, but I, I wouldn't say, oh, you've got to read certain books. That's why even that three books, kind of part of me wants to resist it, you know, because mm. as soon as you're done, it sounds prescriptive and pretentious, and it's like you're beginning to make up the Ten Commandments again. You kind of figure, <laughs> well, I don't know. We were listening to a, a George Carlin thing in class the other day on religion where he's trying to reduce the Ten Commandments. It, it comes out with just two commonsensical things, like uh, don't betray your partner. <laughs> That's not nice. If you, you're sharing your intimate life with somebody, don't screw around on them, and, and try not to kill anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and, and the rest of me kind of rubs out. Yeah. And I, there's a similar kind of thing with, you know, follow your best instincts. Trust yourself. You're a grown-up now. You know how to behave. You don't need the Ten Commandments. If you need the Ten Commandments, you probably should be locked up in an institution somewhere. <laughs> you don't know that you shouldn't steal people's stuff. You shouldn't kill like, people. Like if you the should, only things, if the know, only like, thing we between, should know that stuff. You know, if we, the only thing between you and breaking the law is the law. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that was his point. You should have been in that seminar. We had a lot of trouble getting some of those students to understand you know, <laughs> that he wasn't mocking religion in particular. He wasn't being sacrilegious. He was kind of saying, you know. If you grew up and you're an adult now, you should kind of know how to behave. If you survived adolescence, my God, if you survived adolescence, <laughs> you know the rules. Yeah. Just live by And I feel the same way. You survived your English classes. Just follow your instincts. You know, it's, uh, you know, and, you know, browse around in bookstores and libraries and certainly on the Internet. The podcasts, I think, are a really good guide. And there's so extraordinary podcasts now where, you know, you know, intelligent but also commonsensical people you know, will talk to you about what they're reading you know, and discuss it in accessible ways, not crush it with jargon and theory and ideological positioning, just tell you why. You know, they've reread Paradise Lost and they hadn't read it since they were in university and boy, did it matter to them. You know, then 
that's you know t- just emerge stay in the culture immerse the way you are not to, i mean you finished 1984 what are you thinking of doing it was an animal farm or animal farm what are you thinking of next uh and then i, I and then i read another novel yeah yeah i read a novel uh that was like some 300 something page and i actually got it done quicker because i borrowed it from a friend so i need to f- finish reading it <laughs> yeah well that's interesting so you you there was a moral imperative that said, I have to give this back to my friend, so I should. Uh, I should yeah. Uh, very good. Do you return Tupperware? <laughs> I always think that's a crucial I part. I, I, I don't no. ever get Tupperware from anybody. Well, I'm at an age. Well, you don't, maybe you're not old enough yet. If people give you food to take away in containers of any kind, oh, do yeah, you return yeah. them? I, no, I bring my own container. You bring a oh, very good. Yeah, like very like, good. like when I uh, no, no. go to get go to dinner uh, at my grandmother's. So I you just, bring? I'll, oh, bring my own, I'll bring my own Tupperware. Yeah, that's what my kids have to start doing. Yeah, <laughs> they take all my stuff. They never give it back. I thought that's the one the thing nice I forgot to tell you. nice Tupperware as well. Bring, give me my stuff. You, know? <laughs> you want food from me. You keep taking away the containers. Next time, I'll just, you know what I'm going to do this Thanksgiving? I'm just going to say to Madeline, hold out your hands. Yep. Just hold out your hands. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now, we'll put it in your pocket. Now get yourself back to Toronto. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you follow literature news? Like no. like Nobel Nobel Prize, no. they don't matter. No, no, I don't. I can't be bothered because I don't like kind of rewards and you know I just don't like this whole business. Give people prizes. There's far too many of. I don't even like teaching awards. Like, what does that mean? You know, and I feel well, I can say that because sometimes people say because they've never won anything. So, they don't, so so I've won some stuff. And I figure meaningless. Just meaningless. You know, it, there was a, a big editing project I worked on for years, and we won a major international award. And I think, so what? So what? You know, if it, uh, so I don't know. And it, it, you know, because all of them are political in some way, all of them exclude others, you know. So, not a, uh, I mean, it, it, the only thing I know, and most of the people who win Nobel Prizes, I don't know who they are, and I've never read their stuff, you know. To, <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like again, Richard Feynman said yeah. uh, when when he got the uh, uh, Nobel Prize, yeah. he, somebody asked him was like, "Oh, how do you feel?" It's like, "Well, it doesn't matter." Yeah, the the joy is not the award; yeah. the joy is the yeah. discovery. Well, that's what I think. I think if you really enjoy teaching, you should need every day should be your teaching award. You don't need people who probably don't know anything about teaching but sit on a committee to decide you get an award because you got more fan letters that year or you get an award because <laughs> you applied a certain kind of pedagogical principle in your mm-hmm. classroom. You know, it, in some ways, awards destroy the very nature of the, th- of, of, the, of the thing they're giving awards for. You know, it's not, you know, like MVP awards in sports. No, they make good copy in newspapers. They keep people attentive after the season ends, like those, those fans who aren't really fans will stay following the sport till they find out who wins the league's MVP award. And they generate debate, that kind of award. People say, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, she was not the MVP at all. They simulate controversy. Other awards just stimulate envy, dissatisfaction, and unhappiness. You know? so, and literary prizes, there are way too many now. I've lost <laughs> track of them all. There used to just be a couple. And even then, you know, people would argue against it. And mostly now they're all there because they increase sales. 
Everybody knows that. So the more awards you give, no, then the more novels, the more books of poetry, the more plays or films get attention in the press or online. There's a nice correlation between the increase in arts awards and the explosion of online entertainment news because you know millions of people will hear this movie won an award this should, poet got an award and then people are likely to go to the movie or buy the book and that's all it's about it is the profit mongers in the industry creating these and then the vanity of the industry itself accepting them they should just not show up except their agent tells them they have to and their publisher tells them they have to. And very few people have got the strength of mind to say, I don't care. Hmm. That if I'm that good, you're going to not publish me because I didn't show up at the awards ceremony? If I'm that good, you're going to not produce my next movie because I didn't show up at the Academy <laughs> Awards? So I don't know. I have a real trouble about awarding things. There was another great Simpsons episode about that where everybody at the uh, no, at the nuclear plant he works for with Mr. Burns, they've all got awards except him. <laughs> So they create a new award called, it's the Award for Excellence in the Field of Excellence. And it goes to the, uh, you know, the whatever little uranium bar is that produces the fuel. I can't remember. It gets the award and not Homer, you know. And it's that wonderful way of saying, what is the stuff we give awards for excellence in what? Well, like, what's excellence? And how are you judging it? Why are we doing it? So that's why, you know, and I was quite happy last year when the Nobel Prize had all that Me Too trouble. It turned out. That's just yeah. for the literature. Though. Yeah, for literature. And it all got, because we're talking about literature, so yeah, that's right. the one I'm thinking of. So I was quite happy, and I was quite sad when I heard two people go out of this year. I don't care who they are. I just was sad to come back. I hope that was going to be the end of it, you know. I, as a society, I don't know why. I guess since we all have the fear that mom liked you more than me, we go through life creating scenarios <laughs> where the majority of us can say, you were more loved than I was. That's my problem. That's why I killed all the goats in, in East Anglia. Um, is there any aspect of your research that you have been waiting, you've been wanting to bring into the classroom but haven't yet? <sighs> I don't, because I really separate them out in very particular ways. As I said, over the years, you know, my wife and I have been ordered, offered jobs jointly at research, um, major research universities in Canada, Britain, and the U.S., and have never accepted them. But because uh, we wanted to stay at an institution where it was primarily undergraduate, which Trent is, where there was no obligation to take on graduate students and where you know, we both go every year to Edinburgh for at least three months and we spend our sabbaticals there and both of us are researchers, you know, based in 18th, 19th century Scottish culture. So I suppose it does come into our teaching, peripherally or otherwise, but not in that way that I've ever designed a course around it or, you know, to, or, or thought of it, you know, that way. Now to... I guess over the last year, while I've been doing all the work on the Britannica and giving lectures in, in the UK on it, I probably I brought it up, and it's become a point of comparison. But not, uh, you know, never explicitly. I'm working right now on 18th century, a, 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 a trial in 18th century Scotland that resulted in extraordinary, you no know, publication rages. But I would never think of doing a course on crime and literature in order to bring it in 
I enjoy getting away from the research. And then I teach things that seem to have no relationship to my research. And then I go back to writing about it. I got a new energy. Yeah, and I go back to it. And it's not that they really separate because actually I find my teaching gives energy to my research more than the other. And I know that seems counterintuitive, but I think my wife would agree that no, we come and we teach and we get a lot, like we get all kinds of energy from students and students will come up with ideas and you think, I never thought of looking at things that way. And it makes me go back to my research thinking, I gotta be more like my students. I gotta see things freshly. I can't just come back at this and think I've worked it out. So for me, it's the opposite. You know, undergraduate teaching gives me the enthusiasm and energy to do my research, you know, in a in, in, in more unpredictable ways. Yeah. Is it true that most professors yeah. are the other way around? We're supposed to be, and that's what we're told, and that's how my colleagues talk. But I've never understood the. I just think that would be really boring. And if teaching is exciting and unpredictable, shouldn't that make you want to be more unpredictable in how you look at your research? I've had a couple of colleagues in sciences who said what they loved about undergraduate teaching. It made them start thinking outside the box again. So they might be teaching their field, but they would really be interested in people who would come to it fresh because they'd have a, and not necessarily the brightest person in the class, but an undergraduate who would say something they would think, you know, if I said that at a conference, people would laugh, but you're right. I should think about it that way. You know, I, I should take that perspective. I, I've been too professional, too academic. There was a guy who taught here for years, a Scottish guy, Don Mackay. He and Tom Hutchinson came together, and they're both very radically different teachers, uh, in, uh, like radically different from other teachers, how they approach environmental studies. And Don always talked about that. Uh, and he had won all the major prizes. His, the Mackay formula for measuring toxicity when there's oil spills mm-hmm. you know, just changed everyone's views towards how we cleaned up no uh, environmental contamination. No. And he always talked about going as far away from his research as possible to get, you know, uh, to get inspired. Yeah. Who's your favorite author? Oh, that's like my three books. I suppose, and I know what I'd rather say, when I retire, which I will do probably in a few years, what will I miss most? Talking to students about Shakespeare. I really miss that. Everything else is fun. And this year, the modern laughter course, I always enjoy that. No approaching the 18th century, which is where my research has always been from unusual angles. I can do that in undergraduate classes. I could never do it in a graduate class because they would need it to be given it, given to them as it is now. What are professors saying at conferences about the 18th century? Whereas I can look at it from the point of view of, of how did the print revolution emulate no media revolution today. And those things I'll kind of miss. But when I come away from talking about Shakespeare, I think, no, I'll miss this. Because you know, it's just different every time. You, know, you kind of look at a moment in, in the text, like this, after all these years. And since I don't do research on Shakespeare or go to conferences, all of my enthusiasm comes from going into undergraduate classes where at least half of the students are afraid of Shakespeare or didn't get it in high school and saying to them, give me, give me a whole year. Half year's not enough because we want to go slowly. We'll get it all off the page at the end of the year. 
having many of them turned around to them, not being afraid anymore. Like they'll juggle the text and they'll do things that just, I, I can't believe what they've come up with at the end, you know. And it's all compelling and it's all, you know, worthwhile. That on this. So what author will I miss being able to talk to students about? Shakespeare, because it's not going to be the same reading it by myself. You know, One more superlative yeah. question: Which is your favorite Shakespeare play? That when I when I said I was going to put King Lear on my list, uh-huh. and then I took it off. I think King Lear, mostly because of age. I wouldn't have said that long ago. If you're like 25. But more and more <laughs> now, I kind of look and I think, oh, there's something he's saying about the anger that comes with getting older and then the need to kind of just settle in and enjoy the end of the ride because you realize okay because of Shakespeare's resistance Lear's resistance of aging he misses a whole lot of things when he finally settles in to enjoy the ride you know it's okay but I mean again I'll walk away but this year I've been thinking more and more about that so I might change in two months but for now it's that that uh, and Twelfth Night has really mattered to me a lot. I think it's one of the great plays about grief. Uh, one last question yeah, that, that I ask yeah, everybody: Yeah, what are you up to now in terms of research and teaching? Oh well, with research right now, as much as I can next week, I'm going to be writing about this: the trial of Deacon Brody. If you ever go to Edinburgh, the that's the most famous of all the very infamous you know criminals associated with Edinburgh and its dark streets over the year the uh, uh, the writer Ian Rankin that and an earlier book by James Hall called Confessions of a Justified Sinner those are the two things inspired him the most and Robert Louis Stevenson that's where Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde come from but I no one had ever looked at the publications around the trial and they're fascinating I've been looking mm-hmm. at transcripts from the trial so that I've got to write up right now and think about you know where I would send it you know to, you know, to it's it's been a real joy you know that and where my teaching is going but, uh, I want to do a fourth year course before I retire looking at you no know, you know, three great love stories I'm just spending the whole term on that. I've got an idea of which ones I want to look at, but we'll see. But even as I say that, I think I'm bored with that idea already. <laughs> yeah, no, I won't be doing that. <laughs> but, uh, I'll maybe you should uh, teach the Shakespeare as much as I can. Maybe you should but, uh, like uh, start a start an award for a fourth year course or something. Just you know, do award. Yeah, because you seem to love awards so much. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know where my teaching is going. You know, one thing I'm doing this year, I've got eight really enthusiastic fourth-year students. Ah, well, I'm third-year, but she's a wannabe fourth-year. And we're (laughs) taking Twelfth Night and trying to turn it into a 75-minute kind of uh, uh, musical performance. So we're going to spend this whole term dramaturging it, breaking it down, adapting it. And then in the second term, they'll put together this production. So it's a real challenge. We've got to fall back so that if we really don't think we can put on three-night performance without embarrassing ourselves, we'll just do our rehearsed table read with the music and everything else. But that I'm looking forward to because it's going to be entirely driven by the eight of them. Like, I'll give them a lot of guidance. I have no idea where they'll end up. 
So the success and the surprise of it is going to entirely belong to them. And that's the kind of stuff I like. Yeah, that's right now. That's where my teaching is going, just to see what uh, you know, these eight students can, uh, can do with 12 night you know, to, and make it short enough that you might actually come and enjoy it. Yeah. So I think that about does it for this episode. Thank you, yeah. Stephen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and if you want to find links to the stuff we talk about today, you can go to anchor.fm slash naturally hyphen curious. While you're there, you can send me an email with feedback. And if you like this podcast, you can tell friends about it. And until next episode, stay curious. <laughs>